Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be shaped by your word. I ask that you would enlighten us, that you would uh, give us minds and hearts that are open to what you're trying to communicate to us in your word, and that you will give us the courage to put it into practice and to live it out. Father, be with me as I preach this, that it will be beneficial to all who hear, and I pray that we will have a moment where we can truly listen to what you are saying to us in your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to take a look at Acts chapter 15 if you want to follow along. I'm going to read a a larger portion of that. This is the final lesson in this series on the word. And next week we'll start with a companion about the table. But let's not just jump there just yet. Because the Word and the table work together. The Word, of course, is the Word of God. The living Word of God that, we, that comes to us in Scripture. And it gives us meaning and it shapes things for us. It shapes our practices. It shapes our identity. And then when we gather around the table, we know who we are and we know whose we are. And we know the purpose of that gathering around the table. That has something to do with what happens here in this text from Acts chapter 15, and I'd like to share that with you now. Um, Acts 15, first 35 verses. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. A little bit of geography help here so you don't have to look at your map. This means that they're coming from down around Jerusalem, which is heavily Jewish in population, and they're going north to Antioch where the Gentiles had become believers. Anyway, this group is coming from Judea. They arrived. They began to teach the believers there. Unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing intensely. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers there. And they told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem... Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. And they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and He confirmed that He accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for He cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. 
We believe that we are all saved the same way, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul reported about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I've called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, He who made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter that they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers, in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to choose some brothers along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're sending Judas and Silas to confirm that we have decided concerning your question, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from eating blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch where they called a general meeting of the believers and they delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. And then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, and they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. That's the report that Luke gives us in the book of Acts of what happened. Now, I don't know about you, but as you're reading through that and as you're listening to that, if you've been tracking with Acts up to that point, if you know anything all, at all about Acts, you're probably waiting at some point for a miracle to break out. It's like, yeah... They're having this meeting, they're having this discussion, they're going to Jerusalem. Oh, wait till they get to Jerusalem. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira caused some problems and dead. You know, I mean, come on, you know, Simon the sorcerer, 
had some bad ideas. He got challenged. I mean, we got to have a miracle here, don't we? Let's, it's time for a miracle. Let's have something break out. But they have a discussion. They have a Bible study. They write a letter. They send folks back. And there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of agreement. But where's that miracle? They talk about signs and wonders, but, but where is it? I think it's important that we have this story and that little sign and wonder that we might be you know, itching for isn't there. Because I think we get to see a process that looks a lot like something we could do. And in fact, it's held up even as an example of how it might be done when we face these sticky questions. And I've called this a 5D process, a five-dimensional process, just because it's easier to remember if I give you a letter and a number. 5D. There's a disagreement, and then there's a debate or a discussion. If you don't like the word debate, then call it a discussion, whatever it is. But there's something they disagree about, something they talk about. And then there's a process of discernment. We're going to come back to that word. And then there's an understanding of doctrine. We'll come back to that word too. But it ends in discipleship. And the goal is not just to have some big you know, blowout worship or a miracle or a sign and wonder. The goal is discipleship. And that's exactly what they get to by going through this demanding process. I want to look at each part of this. First of all, there's a disagreement and there's a debate. Uh, you know, debate for some of us... Uh, seems a bit too contentious. You may remember that there were histories of church debates. Some of you actually got to go to those. Uh, about my generation, they stopped doing that. And probably a good idea. Because the way we do this now is we just have it out on Facebook. Okay, It's the same difference. Uh, there really isn't a you know, highbrow debate going on at most of these, but it's sort of like going to Friday night at the fights. You know, there's a lot of name-calling. Sounds a lot like Congress. You know, that, that's, that's what they did. I don't know that a lot of good was done in that. Maybe some, but there's a lot of bad that was done too. This disagreement is a, is a very typical disagreement, and there's, there's nothing scandalous about it. At the end of chapter 14, uh, we're told that the door of faith has opened to the Gentiles. And this is the message that the apostles share. This is the message that, that Paul and Barnabas communicate. The door of faith is open to the Gentiles. It's a big revelation. It's a new thing. Up until that point, everybody was thinking, wait a second, do the Gentiles, are they really part of this? Is this what God has in mind in Acts chapter 10? Peter has his experience at Cornelius' house. Uh, in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are finding that, that Gentiles who have no Jewish, Israelite background are accepting the truth about Jesus Christ. Everyone pretty much agrees with this statement. What they're disagreeing about is, yeah, the door's open, but how do they enter? And there's two schools of thought. The Judeans who travel up from the Jerusalem area to Antioch they say, well, they need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses for the sake of their own salvation. 
Now we're a little conditioned when we read that part to go into our audience mode and just say, boo, here come those fair, oh, legalists, you know, here they come, you know, they get up in the meeting, you know, they have to follow the law of Moses, uh, sit down, boo, that's the enemy. Step back. These are Pharisee believers. These are Judean believers. Who makes a trip of 400 miles to go and teach people? They could have just left it alone. But they actually go through the trouble to go up there and to teach them these things, and they must genuinely feel like, hey, you don't know the law of Moses. You need to know this. This is important stuff. It's blessed me and my family for ages. It's why we are the chosen people. Who can blame them for wanting to share this? They think that it's important. Luke gives us no indication that the Judeans or the Pharisee believers in the discussion in Jerusalem are not well-intentioned. There's no statement that says that they, their hearts were really hard or they were uh, trying to challenge this or they were trying to oppose the apostles. This is just their point of view. Paul and Barnabas, on the other hand, say, no, 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 and Peter will later pipe in on this. They come in by grace, as do we all. We know this because of what we've experienced, and it only makes sense. So there's a question. And it's a question worthy of a discussion. In fact, the way they decide to settle it is, let's go to the source. Let's go to the hub of the wheel. Let's go to Jerusalem where the apostles are. They've been there from the beginning. Let's share this with them. In fact, they follow a principle very much like what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 where you go through a disagreement or a dispute and you bring in godly counsel and wisdom to resolve it. Luke even says that they went to Jerusalem to resolve. Not to just silence someone. Not to cancel someone. Not to blackball someone. Not to excommunicate someone. But they went there to resolve a matter. There's a positive goal in sight. So, one group is wrong. One group is right. Both groups could be wrong. It's very doubtful they could both be right. How are they going to settle this? Well, the first thing they do is they go through a process of discernment. I've noticed over the years that this word has fallen into disuse, and I'm not sure why. Maybe you feel the same way. If this is a new word for you, then happy birthday, Merry Christmas. I just presented you with a new word. And I want you to own this word, and I want you to test drive it, and I want you to use it. I like this word, discernment. Discernment has to do with judgment, but not the emotional, self-righteous judgment that we all can't stand. This is the kind of judgment that says, you know, what's the best thing here? you got a decision to make, you know? And it's the difference between what's right and what's almost right. What's really good and what's really great, that's discernment. And when we're in the process of discernment, we're not just always asking yes-no questions, but sometimes we're saying, you know, what's best here? Paul will take the Corinthians through a process of discernment when he says, you know, judge for yourself. Is it, is it right to do anything you want? You know, can you eat any kind of food you want? Sure, sure. Everything's permissible. You've got freedom in Christ. 
But how should you use that freedom? Now, that's another question. And that's discernment. Where everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. And we have to think about these things. Discernment's a good word because it leads us to maturity. It's also a word that helps us to discover. In fact, it's a lot like investigation, perception, paying attention. What you see the group of leaders, what you see this first generation church doing in this matter is they say, they say to themselves, you know, the Lord's opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. How do they get in? But really the question we want to ask is, what's the Lord doing here? What is He up to? What is this? And, and then they ask themselves, well, what have we experienced? Is there anything else that's similar? And they may remember Jesus had some teaching about sheep from another Old. Uh, they may remember you know, the Hellenistic Jews who they are brought into the church and even though their culture is very different, they're equipped to take care of their own, to take care of their widows. There's a little bit of tension there. There's a little bit of cultural uh, uh, divide there. And the discernment of the leaders is, let's empower them the same way we're empowered. Let's empower them with the Holy Spirit the same way we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the same God that works in us can work in them. They're willing to share it. They don't have to be authoritarians. They, they see what God is doing with the Samaritans and, and even an Ethiopian who would have been excluded from the temple fellowship. But now he's included in the kingdom of God. They see this Spirit of God being shared Breaking down walls of enmity between peoples. I mean, you know, you think it's bad with Oklahoma and Texas. You ought to try the Jewish Samaritan divide. That was really bad. And it had to do with a lot of the same stuff. No, it didn't. That's, forget that. I just checking to see if you're paying attention. But anyway, they, they, they see these walls being broken down by the Holy Spirit. So they say, yeah, we've seen something like this before. And then Peter must be sitting in that meeting hearing about all this, and he goes, oh, I know exactly what that was like. I went to Cornelius' house. Is he a Gentile? You know, he was serving bacon. Okay. So, you know, I mean, yeah, he's Gentile. But he receives me in his house. I'm not supposed to be there. I'm having a fuss with God and a dream about what kind of meat is kosher. And then I'm going to his house. I go into the house. There's his family there. All of a sudden, you know, I'm saying, I, I really shouldn't be here. Uh, don't know if this is proper kosher practice for me to be here. And then they break out with the Holy Spirit. God's accepting them. Why shouldn't I? So now they start to ask another discernment question. It's a question that we can ask. Well, we see what the Lord is doing here, but what was the Lord doing there? If we look back, if we look around, what is the Lord doing there? Peter does that when he speaks to the group and he says, God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. Peter is talking about something that we've read about in Acts. We know what he's mentioning. He's saying, I, I saw this. I witnessed this. I witnessed God's Holy Spirit approve of them before we even took any action whatsoever. So what does the Word of the Lord indicate in all of this? I mean, Peter can say that he saw this, and we trust Peter. Paul and Barnabas can tell us about the signs and wonders they've seen, and we trust them. But really, anybody can say anything. But does it line up? with what's indicated in God's Word. 
Because if, if those can line up with each other, then you've got a test of consistency there. That's where James, who's very much a leader in Jerusalem, James, the, the brother of Jesus, speaks up and says, um, he says, this fits with Scripture. This fits with Scripture. And he's quoting Amos 9 specifically where he reads this passage that God says, I'm going to make myself known to the Gentiles. I'm going to call out from them a people with my name. Now there's a lot of scriptures that James could have gone to other than just Amos. And, and maybe that's the one that Luke records. Maybe they did much more Bible study than that. But the word of the Lord indicates not that God has permission to do this, but that they realize that God was always intending to do this all along. And that God's grace in accepting them precedes any need to follow the covenants of circumcision, the laws of Moses, that they can do that if that's not a burden. So this is where, to use our model, they go through the hub, the spokes, the rim, and the tread of the wheel. Now, if you missed this last week, we're going to review as we talk about doctrine. When it comes to our teaching and when it comes to how we understand things, we need to be able to identify in the Word of the Lord what's at the hub, what is the primary core story. Because the wheel turns on the hub. That's what holds it all together. If your wheel is not on the axle, if it's not connected to the hub, then it's just going to fly off. You've just got a tire swing at that point. You've got a wheel that's laying on the ground. You've got a garden planter at that point. Okay, But if it's connected to the hub, then you've got something useful there. That hub is the primary core story. And you see them doing this in Acts 15. We see Jesus doing that when He's asked, what are the two greatest commandments? We see this in the Old Testament when they point back to what God did in the Exodus. And then in those spokes, that's where you've got the expanded words. You've got the, the words of the prophets. You've got the, you've got the stories, the parables. You've got so much other stuff that expands on that and illustrates that hub. It extends the hub out to the rim and the tread, which is where we live out the Word. The rim is the reflection, the discussion, the practices, but the tread is where the rubber meets the road. That's where we practice discipleship. That's where devotion comes into it. You know, I, I want you to know right now, this is a model. okay? And like any model, it gives you a conceptual idea. Just like the five Ds. You're not going to find those five Ds in Scripture, not in the order that I've given them to you. They're there, but it's not there as a set the way I am. That's just my teaching technique. This wheel is just my teaching technique. If this is useful to you, then praise be to God. If it's not, find something else. But the, you could say the rim and the tread are the same thing. I'm just making a distinction because at some point we go from just talking about it, which is the rim, to actually living it out, which is hard, which is the tread. And you see, they do that in Jerusalem. They have their big meeting. They write their letter. And everybody could have said, that's great. They had a meeting about it. They wrote a letter about it. That's a church council. No, that's, that wasn't their intent. 
Their intent was to say, we need to give some message back to them because they need to live out the hub in their world. They need to live it out. So we want to give them some encouragement, some guidance, some instruction. The way they use the wheel here is, right at the hub, the thing that they all agree on is, the grace of the Lord saves. Peter says that. He says, hey, Gentiles don't need to keep those covenant practices, those rules to be saved. They're saved by the grace of God. I saw it when God accepted them. Paul and Barnabas say, yeah, we saw it too. And then they say, but you know what? That's not just true of them. That's true of us as well. That the reason why we have those covenant practices, the reason why we have circumcision, is because God showed grace to Abraham. God showed grace to Moses. God showed grace to our ancestors. That's why we have any of that. He accepted us when we were not very acceptable. That's the hub. And that becomes an important concept, and everything gets tested against that. When James finds Amos 9, 11, and 12 in agreement with this, he sees that faith precedes circumcision. Yeah, that's a spoke. That carries that out. Peter talks about the gospel being received among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas describe the signs and wonders that they've seen. They're saying, it's happening out there, folks. We'll tell you what we saw. And you know, the discussion is even going in two directions because the Pharisee believers are able to say, hey, we think that they've got to do this to be saved. They're heard. They're allowed to give their point of view. And there's probably good reason why they feel that way. But it doesn't attach to the hub. And as far as we know from what Luke has told us, those Pharisee believers accept this. They say, yeah, this makes sense. It doesn't mean they have to give up their their Pharisee lifestyle. It just means that they can't bind it on others. They can't put an unnecessary burden on the Gentiles. But the Gentiles are asked to do a few things. And here's where the rubber meets the road, the tread. In the letter, everyone is being asked not to burden the Gentiles with a matter that doesn't really attach to the hub it's like this isn't worth burdening them with why because it's not at the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and secondly we do need to instruct them to avoid some sinful practices it would it would go well for them if they would avoid these things and then you have those three or four things depending on how you count it sexual immorality uh, idolatry and eating blood or strangled animals. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty hub. You know? That's pretty core right there. Idolatry, not a good idea. Because it distracts you from following God. Sexual immorality, not a good idea. Because we tend to find our identity gets wrapped up in that when it shouldn't be. But what about this eating blood, preacher? Because boy, I really love eating blood. Well, if that's you, I have bad news for you. You're probably going to get a disease. (laughs) I know some of you are deer hunters and you're like, you got to drink the blood of the deer, you know. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You can do that. That doesn't make you a better hunter. 
fact, it might make you worse when you get some sort of tick illness or something like that, and you're out there sweating, getting a fever out in the deer woods. But whatever. This eating blood and strangled animals had to do with their table fellowship. You know, God, and, 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 he says, and James says, this goes way back. It goes so far back, you see it in Genesis 9, where God says this to Noah. He says, you know, you've saved all these little critters. We've saved life. Life matters. Life, you know, is worth something. Now, if you're going to eat some of these little critters, at least you're going to do it with respect, okay? You're going to drain the blood from them before you do it. I don't mean to get all gory here and everything. And I don't think that if all we get from Acts 15 is some rule about, you know, the way we eat and the way we butcher animals, then we've missed the big point. Which is, it's about the table that they come around because all of these have something to do with identity. So they come up with a doctrine or a teaching. And again, that word gets so abused and misused. We treat the word doctrine like it's dogma, which dogma is very concrete and cannot be changed. Or we think of the word doctrine as being something philosophical or academic or political, like the Monroe Doctrine or the Truman Doctrine. But really, doctrine is simp- in its simplest term is just teaching. I love what some of you know Randy Harris. Uh, he's a teacher and speaker. He's got a couple of books. One of them is called God Work. I love what he says in, in God Work. He says, doctrine matters. Because if you have bad doctrine, you're going to have bad practices. If you believe that, you know, if you pray things a certain way that God's going to give you all the money in the world, well, that's not going to work out very well. That's bad doctrine leading to bad practice. So doctrine does matter. And again, there's an endless list of examples that we could come up with. I'd like to put it like this. Good doctrine makes good disciples. When Jesus gives us the greatest commandment, you see, it, uh, you see our version of it on that banner back there, make disciples for Jesus who are eager to serve others. We think that serving others is what Jesus teaches us to do. That's our doctrine. That's not our doctrine. That's His doctrine. That's a good doctrine. And we teach it in a lot of different ways. We teach it in our curriculum, we teach it in our sermons, we teach it by example, we teach it in our practices. One of the reasons why we do events with our youth, with our kids, with others, is because we want to show them what this looks like. One of the reasons that we have ministries, like the foster closet, the hope chest, cure, is because we believe that this matters. We're living out what we teach. Good doctrine makes good disciples. And in fact, Jesus, when He tells these apostles, these same apostles who are there in Jerusalem, He says... Go and make disciples of all nations. Hey, do you think they remembered that? Because all nations wouldn't just be Jews, would it? No. It would be those folks in Antioch of Syria. It would be those folks in Macedonia. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's not just baptizing, it's also teaching. And Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So when we have these Sticky questions. He hasn't abandoned us. He's there with us. And good disciples then live what they learn. A disciple is simply a learner. Someone who's learning the doctrine of God, the the way of God. It's not just stuff to memorize, it's stuff to live out. 
So in Acts 15.29, in the letter, when the leaders say, you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from eating blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you'll do well. These disciples need to avoid those things because those things are going to interfere with their new identity in Christ. Because those things are associated with bad doctrine about God, about themselves, about the world that they live in, about magic and about powers that are attached to the way that they eat those food or the blood, the ceremony, the rituals. It's all attached to things that are going to lead them astray. And it's going to be a burden on those believers from the party of the Pharisees. So he's asking them to respect one another. Here's the thing. You can say, well, that seems unfair. Why is God asking them to give up their blood sausages if it's just the sensitivity of these other groups? I can tell you I've had a blood sausage. It tastes like eating a horseshoe. You're not missing out on much. And I guess what we need to see here is that they're being asked to leave those tables connected with meat sacrificed to animals, which is usually what a strangled animal was. But they're being invited to a better table. They're being invited to a table where the only blood is the blood of Christ. They're being invited to a better table where when they come around it, they receive their identity. They take that identity into themselves. They consume the body and blood of Jesus, they consume the mind and the spirit of Jesus. We absorb that. So they're being asked to leave a table that takes them away from God, but they're being invited to a table where everyone there is being drawn closer to God. You know, this has implications for the table that we come around every Lord's Day. I hope you see in this an example of how the, the discernment of God's Word, can shape us as a people. You know, after we leave worship here today, some of you will go to different places and you'll have meals. You might be having a meal with someone else. You might be having a meal alone. You might be eating at home. You might be going out. And you know what? We could sit here and talk about all of that. But we're about to have a meal and share a meal that's been shared with us. This meal is the Lord's Supper. It's a nourishment for us in many ways. Now, I want you to know that in that first generation, this was also a meal that fed people. It provided food. And we'll get into that in the weeks ahead. But I think it's enough for us right now to know that there is a better table. That there's a meal that's been prepared. That's been bought and purchased for us. By one who gave his life, who sacrificed, who was devoted to God. You've been invited to this meal. You're asked to respect this meal. You're asked to receive this with gladness and thanksgiving. Because there's hope in this meal. And it's not we who invite you to this. It's He who invites you to this. And so, 
I get it that some of us around this table are going to be thinking, am I worthy? No, you're not, and neither am I. We're invited. That's what matters. Now, I can do this in a way that's not very worthy of the meal, and that's a different thing altogether. Or, I can receive it with graciousness, with gratitude, and then I can ask, if God shows me this much grace, then how should I live for Him today? How should I live for Him tomorrow if He's willing to include me on His banquet list? That's a good question. A question that deserves our discernment, which takes us back to the Word of God. Let's stand and sing, and then uh, James Ireland will lead us in prayers around the Lord's Supper.